Well, good morning. Um, it is it is good to be with you. Um, it's the second time I've um, I've preached here. I think it's the fourth time I've worshipped here, um, and uh, it's a it's a joy to be with you. Uh, for those that don't know me, uh, my name is Luke Smith. I'm currently a pastor at Rincon Mountain PCA on the east side. Um, soon to be uh, a uh, pastoral resident at Midtown Presbyterian um, here in Tucson, transitioning this summer. Um, there's a, a long road to hoe um, before we get there, hopefully in the 1st of August um, this week. Uh, we're starting fundraising. And so my wife and I decided, let's go to San Diego. Uh, and, um, my wife is expecting our second uh, boy, uh, the 1st of June. And so um, we need a little break uh, from all the busyness. So you can be in prayer for us this week and as we uh, make our transition uh, to Midtown to work with Charles Garland and uh, Dan Smith, uh, who's working with RUF. So prayers are appreciated. Um, this morning we're going to be in Psalm 15. So if you turn there to Psalm 15, uh, and as you're turning to Psalm 15, uh, I just have two questions for you. And those two questions are the two points this morning. Um, so maybe you're thinking, two points, good, it's going to be a shorter sermon than normal. Uh, probably not, um, but we'll see how it goes. But the, the two questions for us this morning uh, are these. What kind of person do you want to be? What kind of person do you want to be? And secondly, what kind of world do you want to live in? What kind of world do you want to live in? So let's keep those in mind as we read uh, these verses this morning. Psalm 15. This is a psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Would you pray with me? O oh Lord, uh, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight our strength, our Redeemer. Amen. I've never been too much of a reader, um, but in recent years I have started reading more simply by being part of a, a book club within our church. And um, and so I, I've read quite a bit of fiction the past few years. It's been really enjoyable. Something that I've noticed as I've read through uh, a bunch of, uh, of works of, of fiction and, and various types of literature across all um, ages, uh, and this is true actually for even films as well, is that you don't really find a lot of stories that involve utopian societies. Uh, you find some uh, when you do uh, run across these utopian stories. It's usually that utopia is usually presented uh, as something that has been manufactured. Um, it's been manufactured in some way, maybe through laws that are established, uh, where um, you know everybody better obey these certain laws and rules, or else 
you die, right? Uh, there is severe punishment. Uh, or maybe there is a, a utopian society where uh, people take a bunch of pills that renders them emotionally neutered, and, um, and that helps prevent crime. But the problem with these utopian societies is they're always hanging by a thread, right? It's always a house of cards that's ready to fall. And, and the reason is because we we see human depravity at work, right? We know human depravity. It's, it's like um, what French philosopher Bertrand de Juvenal said. Uh, he, he said, there is tyranny in the womb of every utopia. In other words, if you know yourself well enough, you know that it is humanly impossible to manufacture this type of utopian world. And so what you find in most literature and in most film is dystopian societies, right? You see this all over the place. You look at writers like Jonathan Swift and Jules Verne, H.G. Wells, E.M. Forrester, Franz Kafka, Philip Roth, Sinclair Lewis, Aldous Huxley, Ayn Rand, George Orwell, P.D. James, Cormac McCarthy. You even find dystopia in Dr. Seuss. If you look at the story of the Lorax, that is dystopian. You look at movies like Mad Max, Minority Report, Batman, even the animated film Wally. It's dystopian. The writer Nathaniel Hawthorne, he said that even when a new colony is founded that seeks to be a utopia of human virtue and happiness, one of the earliest practical necessities is to allot land for a cemetery and a prison. This is what we know. We get dystopia because we get human depravity. But we don't want that. What we want is peace, right? We want uh, peace of mind, peace in our hearts, peace in our families, peace in our community peace in the world. The reason we desire peace is because we we are made in God's image. Even for those that don't realize they're made in God's image, they still are made in God's image. And the things um, that we desire is, is what we would say as believers, as Christians, is that we desire something that has that is far more glorious than what we experience now. We we want something better. Because we know that we were made for something better. Things weren't always dystopian. They didn't feel that way. Things weren't always broken. We had paradise and we lost it. We want to experience love and freedom and blessing and beauty and kindness and friendship and truth. But that is something that cannot be manufactured. However, there's hope, right? The Apostle Paul says, we grieve, but we grieve as those who actually have hope. We have the hope of the gospel. We have hope that, that God is making things right, that, that paradise can and it will be restored. And we're going to experience that. And we get to experience part of that now. And it's not a work of fiction. And it's not something that can be manufactured, humanly speaking. The gospel is a story of, of God's work of restoration in this world and in the body of, of his people in our hearts simply because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, right? That is our hope, and that is a hope that changes everything about our world. Now, you can't read Psalm 15 without having read Psalm 14, um, and I'm not going to read all of it, but but they're connected, right? They're Psalms of David. Psalm 14 is really kind of the, the part one of these of this couplet of Psalms. 
Psalm 14 pictures what the sinful world looks like. Psalm 15 is what the redeemed world looks like. Psalm 14 is what unredeemed, unregenerate humanity looks like. When Psalm 15 looks like regenerate humanity. Psalm 14 begins with God looking down at human beings and seeing that we're all depraved, that there's no one who's good and we all deserve judgment. Right. This is what, what David says. He says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there is any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. The the fool, as David portrays, the fool is someone who is considered a defiant person, who, who denies that God exists, even despite all the evidence to the contrary. He says that humanity, all humanity, are corrupt. The word used there means that they're ruined like, um, like food that has spoiled, like it's gone too far to be salvaged. It's actually the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 6 when the Lord looks down at humanity again and says that the thoughts of the hearts of, of people are evil all the time. It's something, this corruption is something that implies uh, that it is humanly impossible to restore. Then he goes on and says, Is there anyone good? Is there anyone that isn't corrupt? The answer is no, right? There are none who would be an exception to, the, to this. In fact, he says that together they have become corrupt. There's actually a different word for corruption that is used in verse 3 of Psalm 14. Uh, this word in verse 3, it refers to moral decay. In other words, that humanity is united together in their depravity. And that comes through the sin of Adam. But Psalm 14 actually ends on a hopeful note. Um, it ends with the sure hope of salvation that will come out of Zion by a Redeemer. We know to be Jesus. It, it actually provides this beautiful transition as we get into Psalm 15, where now, knowing that God will restore what was lost in Adam, we see God's design for that redeemed world. Right? We see paradise restored. Now, Psalm 15 begins with these questions in verse 1. He says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now, for us to understand these questions, we have to remember the context. First, Psalm 1 is written to, excuse me, Psalm 15 or any psalm (laughs) is written to whom? It's God's people, right? It's written to God's people. But also, what we have to remember is that this psalm assumes that you know that God has made a way to make all sad things come untrue. He has made a way for redemption. He has made a way for the upside-downness of this world to be turned right-side-up by the work of Redeemer and that you get to enjoy the benefits of that right now. In other words, Psalm 15 assumes that you have read Psalm 14 and that you agree with it in the state of humanity and that your heart has already been changed. So the question that David asks in Psalm 15 aren't asking about what needs to happen before we can have a relationship with the Lord. They focus our attention on what it looks like for those whom the Lord only by His grace has already redeemed and dwells with despite 
their sin. It looks at a people who have an identity being in their Redeemer, having the redemption of their Savior. Psalm 15, and our point, main point is this, that Psalm 15 is a picture of what image bearers of God look like when functioning properly. Right, And therefore, what their world is supposed to look like as these people engage with it. In other words, Psalm 15 gives us a picture of what life looks like as we participate in God's mission. As we looked at yesterday in, in our conference session, as Christopher Wright says, it looks like our committed participation as God's people at God's invitation and God's command in God's own mission within the history of God's world for the redemption of God's creation. This In Psalm 15, this is redeemed humanity embodying the character of their hospitable God who has welcomed them into new life with Him. So, um, point one. What kind of person does God desire? What kind of person does God desire? Well, we're just going to walk through this psalm verse by verse uh, and see what the Lord has to say. If you look at verse 2, this is a person who is uh, whose character is blameless, right? Um, the Lord desires a person of character, first and foremost. Uh, their character is blameless or wholehearted. They walk with integrity, right? Um, they do what is what is right. In other words, this is someone who who acts according to God's moral standards alone. This is someone, as you see at the end of verse 2, who speaks truth to his heart. In other words, God's truth is the rudder of the ship that steers his life. Psalm, or excuse me, verse 2 in Psalm 15 is kind of like the summary verse. It's the summary headline for the rest of the psalm that flows out of the character of this person who has been redeemed by the Lord. But this character of of this individual is not just something that is to be internally realized. It's to be externally recognized. Right? People should be able to witness it. It should be evident among others in relationships with them, within the community of God, and among all people. We're to be signposts of God's redemption. There shouldn't be a question that you are one who walks with integrity. There shouldn't be a question that you uphold God's standards for morality. There shouldn't be a question that what steers your life is God's word alone. It's recognized among others. God desires a person of character. And this character is also exemplified in the person's words. Right? Look at verse 3. Words matter. This person doesn't go around and... Uh, someone's back and and speak ill of them. They don't slander another person. They don't say hateful things or injure them. Just a note, the word for neighbor that David uses in, in Psalm 3, in verse 3, or excuse me, Psalm 15, verse 3, the word for neighbor here really means anybody and everybody, irrespective of race or creed. All people. You know, sometimes we can actually injure um, others um, without meaning to by simply saying something that's that's pretty ignorant. Have you ever done that? Uh, maybe ignorant of that person's situation, that person's context. Sometimes we don't realize that we've done this because no one confronts us about it. Um, like uh, being in the midst of a group of friends, maybe it's within the church and there's a few people that 
you know, you have these seasons where um, there tends to be, for some reason, a lot of pregnancies all at once uh, sometimes. In our church, it was like that um, very recently. And, uh, and there was one uh, person in the church that walked up to another um, who wasn't pregnant and said, Man, you know, aren't you getting the baby fever with, uh, with all these babies around? And little did they know that that person had wrestled with infertility. Um, it's not malicious. We just are ignorant. Right? We can injure somebody without knowing it. But what Psalm 15 is getting at is, is that the wholehearted person thinks before they speak. Right? But we don't have to say words to hurt others, to hurt their character, right? to um, demean their dignity. Right? This is someone who doesn't take up a reproach against his neighbor, against his friend. You, know, you, you don't need to verbally discredit someone or disapprove of those near to you in order to injure them or hurt their character, Right? You can do it in your heart. You can think something ill about them. That injures them. That person is made in, in the image of God. But this character is also exemplified in the posture that one takes as we engage with the world around us. Look at verse 4. It says, In whose eyes a vile person is despised. Now, that seems kind of harsh at the surface level, right? Um, despising the vile person may seem like an unkind act. But what this is speaking of is someone who simply recognizes sin and despises sin for what it is. They despise wickedness. They shun evil. And thus, they speak God's truth into others' lives. But this is also one who recognizes and upholds righteousness for what it is and rejoices in it when they see it in another person. So they shun evil. They despise the vileness of of wicked people, but they rejoice in truth and righteousness when they see it as well. This character is also exemplified in one's work or dealing that you have with other people. Right? Look at the end of verse 4. This is someone who swears to his own hurt and does not change. So this is a person who is true to their word. Right? Uh, they, they don't renege on the promises that they make to other people, even when it means that maybe keeping that promise is going to hurt you in the long run. Right? Have you ever made a promise where you're thinking, man, that's going to come back to bite me? Um, they swear to their own hurt and they don't change, even though it requires long suffering of the individual, even though it may mean that you suffer. In verse 5, you see that this person is one who would never think of doing some injustice to those who are, who are vulnerable. Right? This is someone who wouldn't take a bribe against the innocent or put out his money at interest. Now, David's words here, he, he's, he's thinking about a very specific situation that actually came up um, among God's people as they uh, roamed throughout the wilderness from, from Deuteronomy chapter 23. It's a certain injustice that pops up in God's law. In Deuteronomy 23, it says that if a foreigner comes to you in need, maybe uh, because uh, they have gone through some sort of catastrophic life event, maybe some sort of natural disaster, let's say um, a tornado. I don't know if they have tornadoes in the wilderness of, of uh uh, of, of Canaan um, or in, in Egypt and then making 
way they're across the desert. Maybe it's a, it's a sandstorm, whatever it is. And uh, you lose some sort of property. Let's say that uh, now you need a new wagon um, and a new wagon wheel. And you go to someone uh, in need uh, and you ask to borrow money for the, the replacement of, of that wagon. Then that Israelite could actually lend you money at interest if they wanted, if you were a foreigner. But if you were a fellow Israelite, then your Israelite brother could lend you money but could not do it at interest. You have to be free of interest. But, but here, here's the thing. When we come to Psalm 15, God's design for redeemed humanity goes one step further to where there are no such stipulations. Right? J- just like verse 3 says that you are not to do evil to your neighbor, which includes anyone and everyone, here the intention is that even if a foreigner who doesn't worship the same God as you worship is an idolater, even if they come to you and they are desperate, then you are to help him and do it without wanting something in return. Now, let's just take a step back, kind of 10,000 foot level view. This is a beautiful picture of humanity at work, right? It's a beautiful picture. This is the kind of world that I want to live in, right? Is it the kind of world you want to live in? Yeah. But it's also pretty radical because it's, it's so selfless. These are kinds of people who promote the well-being of others. And we know that, that when we sin, sin can promote sin in others, right? Sin begets sin. If I say something hurtful to you, you may say something hurtful back to me, right? Some unkind word. That happens with our kids all the time. Um, but having the kind of godly character described here actually assists others in living the way that God has ordered things. It actually uh, helps other people to flourish. It promotes holiness in others if we live according to this character marked out for us. But here's the problem. The problem is is that my character and your character often doesn't look like the character of the person in Psalm 15, right? So how do we respond to that problem? How do we respond to that disconnect? Well, there's a couple things we may do. We may set low expectations for ourselves. Um, we, We may say, you know, I try to live this way. Uh, but it's too difficult to meet all the criteria of this kind of person. Uh, it's actually much easier to fool others into thinking that we do embody this kind of character. What are the lies that you want people to believe about you? Um, it's so much easier to fake it until you make it, right? Even if we never make it. What are the lies that you want people to believe about you? What kind of person do you want to, them to think that you are? We may set low expectations of ourselves. But we also may use excuses to not live this way. You know, we, we may say something like, man, this is just not a very, um, this is, doesn't look like capitalism. Um, we may say, you know, it's, it's just unwise to help someone out if you know you're not going to get your money back. That's just not good business. Right? Where's the return on my investment? Or maybe we, we, we say, you know, if that person would just not do something stupid, that I wouldn't have to say mean things to them on the internet. Um, 
It, it is funny. Um, it's also sad. You know, there, there's a, especially with um, the, the rise of social media, the sad thing about social media is that you can say pretty much what you want, when you want, however you want, without having to look someone in, in the eye. There's um, a lady named Justine Sacco, who was a PR executive, um, and she was traveling from New York uh, to London to Cape Town uh, a few years ago, and um, she uh, she was on Twitter, and she had 170 Twitter followers. Now, if you don't know anything about Twitter, um, that is not a lot of, of followers, right? Um, and... Uh, but so she had 20, uh, 170 Twitter followers. She was going for this business meeting. She got on the plane in New York to go to, to go to London, and uh, she sent out a tweet. She she says, uh, "There's a German man in front of me who stinks of bo. Come on, it's the 21st century. Get some soap." Um, she gets off in London and she tweets again. She said, "You can tell I'm in London because it's raining and everyone has bad teeth." And then as she was getting on uh, the plane to go to Cape Town, South Africa, um, she tweeted out this. She said, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white. And she turned off her phone and she went to sleep for the long flight. Uh, When she got off the plane, she had missed uh, tens and hundreds of texts and emails, and phone calls, and voicemails. A friend of hers said, um, your tweets, especially your last tweet, has gone viral. It went beyond the 170 Twitter followers. It is now the most trending tweet in the world. When Justine Sacco got off the plane in Cape Town, South Africa, she had lost her job, and her character was ruined. Now what she said was sinful, right? But sin begets sin, right? It can ruin someone. What others said about her ruined someone. And our, 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 our pushback against that, our rebuttal may be, but that's not me. I would never do something like that. I would never say something like that. And I surely wouldn't ever do that to someone to ruin them. But think about the ways that we use things like the internet and social media, and email. Think about the way that we talk about people when we don't look them in the eye. Even when we do look them in the eye. right? But especially when we talk behind their backs. You actually don't even need any of these mediums um, to speak ill of someone. We have a tendency to talk about people in a way that denies their dignity as someone who's made in God's image. And yeah, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit. I mean, celebrities. How do we speak about celebrities? They're made in God's image. Um, politicians. They're made in God's image. Even if we disagree with them, even if they are counted among the wicked, they're made in God's image. How do we talk about foreigners? Refugees. Immigrants, they're made in God's image. How about we talk about those uh, that are even close to us, um, that get on our nerves that we may not like. They're made in God's image. Remember, you can take up a reproach against someone in your heart without even saying a word. You know, we, we also may view these character traits from Psalm 15 through a lens of moralism. 
Um, I came across this quote recently. This man said, It's wrong to deprive someone else of a pleasure so that you can enjoy one yourself, but to deprive yourself of a pleasure so that you can add to someone else's enjoyment is an act of humanity by which you always gain more than you lose. Now that sounds a lot like Psalm 15, right? Guess who said it? A humanist in the Renaissance named Thomas More. We might be prone to treat this psalm as a list of maxims, as proverbs for good living, but it's not that, right? This kind of life that the psalm calls us to is, one, painfully selfless, and two, it's painfully difficult, right? In fact, it's humanly impossible. Remember, Psalm 14, right? There's no one that can do good outside of God working in you. The point is this, is that this psalm is about living out an identity which you already have in Jesus. This is what life is supposed to look like for those that have been redeemed by their Savior who works in them and through them to properly function as He has designed them, especially as a new creation in Christ. So, secondly, how do we live in the way that God desires. How do we live the way that God desires? Well, look at the end of verse 5. It says, He who does these things will never be moved. Now, we we know that we don't quite align with the person um, mentioned in Psalm 15, right? Uh, but it says that he who does these things will never be moved. So, what is our default response to, to hearing about this character, um, the person with this character that we should embody. Um, our response can be um, the, the call, uh, the, the motto of the U of A Wildcats, right? Bear down. Bear down, try harder. But if we just, and that's not a bad thing to try harder, right? <laughs> to strain towards righteousness, to pursue holiness. But if we just try harder, then we will be crushed under the weight of it. There are two options if we just try harder. You'll get to the end of your rope no matter what. And you'll either despair and it'll crush you, or two, you'll realize that there is only one thread of hope for you, and that's Jesus. Because we know, just like Paul in Romans chapter 7, that the things that we want to do, we don't do, and the things we don't want to do, we do. And we can weep over our failure to live the way that God has designed for us to live. But where there are tears, there's hope. There's one who perfectly looks like the one described in Psalm 15, and it's Jesus. It's our Redeemer who has shed His blood for us, that we would live as His new creation marked out, living a life that He has marked out for us, right? That we can now live according to the psalm as the character of this person because Jesus has given us new hearts right, through His Spirit and through His finished work. And, and that's why we need His grace. If we want to look like this new humanity, this true humanity of Psalm 15 have this redeemed identity, this character of this person, then we need the grace and blood of Jesus to cover us, to cover everything. When we fail to walk with integrity, we need the blood of Jesus. When our hearts are not guided by the truth, we need the blood of Jesus. When we fail to speak well of others, we need the blood of Jesus. 
when we give approval to what is evil, we need the blood of Jesus. Even when we do um, all the things that this psalm requires of us, when even in our law keeping, and we live away the, the, according to the way that the Lord has marked out for us, even when we do that, we still need the blood of Jesus. Because the blood of Jesus is life to us. No one is good. No one can do good other than through Jesus. This changes the way that we, we look at our sin, too. Uh, because if we look at our sin, even what we might consider small sins, which there are no small sins, we think, you know, it's not that big of a deal. What we're saying is that the cross of Christ is not a big deal, and His blood doesn't mean much to us. But what if we looked at our sin and said, man, we've got a big God who loves us with a big love. His greatness is unsearchable. His grace and mercy is unfathomable. As we look at Psalm 15, just a question for us, I think, is what, what is your motivation? What is my motivation for living the way that God desires? Um, is, it, is it only to get something from Him? Because we do get blessing from Him when we follow Him, right? Um, but it's easy to slip into thinking only in terms that if we just obey the Lord, then we'll get good in return. We'll experience blessing. Is it only to get something from God? You know, people ask the question a lot, especially young people. How do I know what to do with my life? I want to live with purpose. Um, they say, I, I just want to do something that makes uh, an impact, something that matters, right? But the follow-up question to that is, well, what exactly do you mean? Um, and, and, and do you want to do it for yourself or do you want to do it for a different reason? I've got a pastor friend of mine who um, was telling the story of someone in their church, uh, or maybe it was just a, a friend of, of his, um, who had for 365 days, um, he wrote a journal entry to his wife, a little love letter, and he commented on the little nuggets that he loved about her. And then at the end of the year, on her birthday, he he gave it to her. And she got the little journal, and she said, oh, thank you. And then she asked this question that was so poignant and so cutting at the same time. She said, did you do this for you or for me? She said, did, did you do this and say these things so that I would return love to you and I would think well of you, or did you do it because you delighted in me? What motivates you to live a life that God desires for you as a new creation in Christ? Is it for selfish gain? Or is it to give glory to the Redeemer who has summoned you from death to life? You know, many people, um, again, at various ages and stages, they ask questions like, how do I know what to do with my life? Uh, the author, New York Times columnist David Brooks, who's a believer, by the way, um, he said this in an article. He said, we don't create our lives. We are summoned by life. The important answers are not found inside. They're found outside. This perspective begins not within the autonomous self, but with the concrete circumstances in which you happen to be embedded. And as a fellow Christian, he would agree that for us, this means redeemed life in Christ. He goes on. He says, your job is to figure certain things out. What does this environment need in order to be made whole? Or what is it that needs repair? As the novelist Frederick Buechner put it, at what point does my deep gladness meet the world's deep need? 
The point is that if you want to live in a way that God desires uh, to only be someone of good character, then you don't understand the finished work of Jesus. Because he has shed his blood to have relationship restored with you and to, to delight in you. But conversely, if, if you want to live the way that God desires to only be someone that God delights in, then you don't understand the enormity of the mission of God in the work of Jesus that he has called you to participate in. If you want to know why God has called you to this picture of redeemed life in Psalm 15, there's so many places in Scripture that you can go, um, even back to the very beginning. Um, but if you look at the history of God's people, starting with Israel, it, it's amazing. Here, here God is, and he, he, he picked out from all the nations this ragtag group of nomadic people right at the time, Israel, right? And, the, and they're messy, um, they're a stiff-necked people. They're rebellious people. But living as Israel, according to God's call for them, was to live as true humanity as He designed. To bless and to be a blessing to the nations. To carry the word of God's salvation to the whole world as His representatives. To be the messengers that this God cares about all of His creation and He desires to restore paradise. It... it is this kind of world from Psalm 15, is this a fairy tale world? No. Um, and it's not just an ideal scenario. It's real. And this is what, by God's grace, the finished work of, of, of Jesus and the ongoing work of the Spirit, this is the world that He will see come to fruition. This is the work that He will accomplish and the best part of it is that he invites us into the work of reconciliation, the reconciliation of all things. He invites messy, sinful people like us, just like Israel, right? And Paul says in, in Philippians 1, verse 6, he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You know, if we look at the world and, and we look at our lives, we may say... It surely doesn't look like paradise yet, right? Um, in fact, we can become maybe a little cynical because the, the more that we that we learn about the brokenness of the world and and, and the brokenness of our lives and our sin, uh, we see, man, the rabbit hole of sin goes really deep. Um, that we can become cynical about whether paradise is being restored, whether Jesus is really making all things new. But the reality is is our hope that we have, that, that Christ is at work, that Jesus is in the boat with you, that he is making all things new. Paul said that we now see dimly, right? But there will come a day, that one day, someday, when we will see the whole work of God on full display at full brilliance. And that day is coming. My, my, my prayer is that, um, is that you and and. All of our churches in Tucson um, would be, and, and personally, me as an individual, we would be so enthralled by the love of God in Christ that we would ask Him to to use us, um, to cause us uh, to to enter into other people's lives uh, for the flourishing of our neighbors, um, to see souls come to faith in Jesus. Um, 
whether those neighbors are uh, the affluent of society, right, who don't seem to need much help, um, uh, or whether they're the most vulnerable parts of our society, or even those, especially those people we don't like. Uh, let's ask the Lord that, that He would use us to promote flourishing that is described here in Psalm 15. You know, the description of the man in Psalm 15 isn't just someone that loves his neighbor, because that's very evident. The description of the person in Psalm 15 is someone who loves his Redeemer. Do you love your Redeemer enough to go love your neighbor? The writer Jean Vanier, he said, love doesn't mean extraordinary, doing extraordinary things or heroic things. It means knowing how to do ordinary things with tenderness. That is what we're called to. Why are we called to do ordinary things with tenderness to our neighbors? It's because that's how we know love, right? That's the love of God to us. Uh, the, the Bible speaks of, of the salvation of Christ as a tender mercy of the Lord. Right? The Lord came to us uh, as a human being. All right, God made flesh and He came near to us. He pressed up against human people. This is His love. Very last verse, again, the psalm ends. How or He who does these things shall never be moved. So how is that a true statement for us? How is it a true statement that he who does these things and we, if we do these things, shall never be moved? It's true only because we can do these things as people established in Christ. Right? It's through Christ alone that we can embody this kind of character. And he's the one, as our new federal head, the new Adam, he's the one who has embodied this for us, that we get the righteousness uh, shown here. We get that righteousness ascribed to us. And if we dwell in Christ, if you are in Christ, then you shall never be moved, right? Paul says there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Psalm 15 is a great picture of the redeemed identity of God's people, of a redeemed world that we want to live in. It's where we're headed, right? It's what we can see in part now, but it's where we're headed. As the Apostle John, as he writes in Revelation 21, he, he gives us this picture of what will come, that one day, someday. He says this, he says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. What a beautiful picture of paradise that is restored. And we get in, invited by the Lord to participate in the reconciliation that will lead to this day. Let's pray. Oh Lord, uh, thank you for being about the good work of the restoration of your creation. Lord, we know that the recon reconciliation of all things um, is aroma of life to some and the stench of death to others. That reconciliation even includes the judgment of men. Lord, but it, for us, it, it means salvation that leads to eternal life. You have reconciled us to yourself, that you have made us right with you through the work 
of Jesus on the cross and through His resurrection and His ascension and His continual intercession for us. Uh, Lord, thank You uh, for inviting us to Your mission uh, to embody the character of our hospitable God. You call us to be a hospitable people. Lord, we pray that we would be a people that would embody the character of the person in Psalm 15 who knows uh, who has saved them, to know whose they are, uh, to know that you draw people like us to yourself. And that includes those around us that you have providentially placed us in and near, in community with them, in relationship with them. Lord, may we embody the righteous character of this person and call people to a righteous life in Christ alone. May we do that all for the glory of God. Amen.